Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We finished last time, and for those that are new this time, I apologize, but you may get a little bit lost at first. But don't worry, we're going to hold your hand and we're going to get through it together. Uh, we talked about Genesis chapter 11, 12, and 13 very quickly, and I just need to come back to one key point, because we are at the verge of a massive war taking place in the Holy Land in chapter 14, which is very difficult to understand. Why is it that the text is there? Why this story taking such a prominent place, only 14 chapters into the first book, written by people believing that they had been chosen by God to save the world, and suddenly there's this whole list of names in chapter, 20, in chapter 14 that we don't know who they are. Well, at least at first glance, we don't know who they are because we tend to read our Bibles too fast. I was just with the missionaries of charity in Germany and, you know, they pray their rosary and like an hour and a half later they finish. Okay, well, not quite that long, but it might as well. It was long. Let me tell you, it was long and I gave them a hard time. I said, you got to start reading your Bibles like you pray your rosary. Slow down, slow down, investigate. Okay, and so I want to point out only two things for you. How many of you actually went home and read your, 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 the text you're supposed to read? Okay, naughty on a lot of you. Chapter 14, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Now, what do we know about Shinar, friends? Do you remember? Come on, don't be, come on. Uh, it's, in the, it's in the east, yes, but what do we know about the people of Shinar? Going back to chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. You know what chapter 11 is? The Tower of Babel. What was going on in the land of Shinar? They were the sons of Ham exactly, and what were they doing? They were moving in which direction? Toward the east. Okay. Uh, actually, if you take a look at it, um, it, says, it says from the east. From the east in verse 2. Okay? Remember we talked about that theme in Genesis that exile always takes place toward the east. There's a big reason for that because the place of salvation is bordered on the western side by a sea, by water. So they can't be pushed off in that direction. Okay? So they're always exiled toward the east. And now we have people in the land of Shinar, which is right near Ur of the Chaldees, and they're going to be moving eastward. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Sorry, westward. I'm sorry. Westward. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing, Henry. However, what type of people are these people? They're the sons of Ham who try to do what? Make a name for themselves. So immediately, you're going to be, Ginger, you're going to be, your antennas are going to go up. Right? There's, these people have now made it to the promised land and they're, they're going to enter into a war with the people living in the Holy Land. Okay? And they're going to enter into a war with another group of people that you see in verse 2. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and a, and a number of other kings. And the only thing you need to know about that is to come back with me to chapter 10, verse 19. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Geza and the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? So who are these men? Who are these kings of Sodom and Gomorrah? The only thing we know is that this is Canaanite land. And the Canaanites try to do what? Like the sons of Ham? They try to make a name for themselves and suddenly we find ourselves here in this land where a man who is being called by God back towards that place of salvation not to make a name for himself but to receive a blessing and that man's name is Abram and he's being called back here and he's going to meet here in chapter 14 after this war takes place and Abraham or Abram at the time uh, basically, he rocks the winning group, okay? He goes and he, he, they take Lot and they go up north. He goes up near Damascus and he beats the guys that won the war, okay? And then he comes back into the Holy Land and we find that he meets somebody very special in chapter 14, verse 17. Chapter 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Shedelomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Some of you have gone to the Holy Land. We went into the king's valley, right near where the city of David is, right there at the, right? right you, you guys remember that, okay. And Melchizedek, king of Salem. Where is Salem? Jerusalem. It's the old name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We're going to find out when the name gets longer and gets that first part on it. But Salem is the ancient name for Jerusalem. Okay? The king of Jerusalem goes out to meet him and his name is? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Now, in the mid... I've got to make my little Holy Land country a little bit bigger, make Jerusalem out here. The king of Salem is in the middle of this land called, called Canaan. And Abram is just coming to that land. It says at that time, the Canaanites dwelt in the land, the land of Canaan. Now, what do we know about the descendants of Cain, the Canaanites? What do, they, what do we know about them? Back from the flood story in Genesis 9. They are to be what? Huh? Do you remember? Come on, guys. Chapter 9, verse 25. And Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves shall be to be, he be to his brothers. Blessed be Shem. What do we know about the Canaanites? They are slaves. Have you ever known slaves to own a land? No. And here they are, owning land, the land of Canaan, and they're surrounding a king named Melchizedek dwelling in the center of that land, the king of Salem. Who is this masked man? Who is Melchizedek? Who is Melchizedek? The epistle to the Hebrews tells us the answer to that story, or at least part of the answer. So turn your Bibles, keep your hand in Genesis, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Now, if you're struggling to find Hebrews, it's okay. Keep flipping. You're going to find it. But if you are struggling, you'll know you just got to read your Bible more. 
For this Melchizedek, look at that in chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth portion of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek is not his first name. Melchizedek is his throne name. Melech means king and Zedek means righteous in Hebrew. He is the king of righteousness. It is the title for the king of Jerusalem. The king of Jerusalem is always called the king of righteousness. The righteous king. So who is he? The Hebrews believed, and the early Christians knew this. I have a quotation here um, for you from St. Ephraim. Who is this Melchizedek? I'm going to tell you, but I think you, some of you already know, but I can almost tease it out of you. Remember when we looked at chapter 11 and we saw that beautiful genealogy all the way from Shem to Abraham. Remember that? From Shem to Abraham. The blessing which Melchizedek gives is the blessing which a father gives to his son. And the last person in our story, remember, a text without a is a text without a context is no text at all. And in chapter 9, we find out that, that, Abraham, that Noah blessed his son Shem to become head of the household. Similarly, the way God blessed Adam. And here now, Abram comes and meets a king and receives a fatherly blessing from that king. St. Ephraim the Syrian says, this Melchizedek, who Hebrew says is by translation of the name, king of righteousness. This Melchizedek is none other than Shem, who became king due to his greatness. He was the head of 14 nations. In addition, he was a priest. He received this priesthood from Noah, his father, through the rites of succession. Say, how is it possible for, Melchi for Shem to still be alive? I gave you your handout last week, and, um, and you might have it there. You can do the math. You can do the math on your own. Shem was only 390 years old, and Shem lived to be 600 years old. Shem was still alive at the time when Abram, his descendant, received the blessing to become head of the house. Melchizedek is Shem, St. Ephraim says, following the Hebrew tradition. And look at what we have now, friends. If Melchizedek is Shem, if he is the king and the Canaanites are his slaves, then what do we know about the Canaanites? They are in revolt to their king. Men who want to make a name for themselves are refusing to serve the one whom God has appointed over them. That's chapter 14 of Genesis. It's extremely important to be able to connect the earlier texts of Noah's story, of even back all the way to Adam, but primarily Noah's story to connect it to the life of Abraham. So many people make the mistake of dislocating Abraham from Noah or from the earlier stories. We can't do that. We have to connect them to make sense of what's going on because God is going to tell Abram, go to this land and I'm going to give it to you and your descendants as an inheritance which is extremely unjust unless unless it is his by right of succession 
And that's exactly what is taking place. He's going to go back to this land. It is going to become the center of the kingdom of the family of God. The center of the kingdom of the family of God. In chapter 15, in chapter 15, and by the way, your Bible should be well highlighted, friends. Especially some of you up in this upper part. Yeah. Your highlighter should be out. You should be highlighting and noting because you're looking at a blank page. You have to be able to look at that page and that chapter, and it's got to come alive to you. What's going on in chapter 15? There's a covenant renewal that takes place. Why is it necessary in chapter 15 for a covenant renewal to take place? Why wasn't chapter 12 enough? Why wasn't chapter 12 enough? What has happened to Abraham or Abram in the meantime? You remember? Yes. He went to Egypt on his own. And we read that text and, you know, it's not looking all that great, is it? He ends up giving his, his, his sister wife, if you will, over to Pharaoh. Okay? But who remains faithful in the story? Who remains faithful in the story? God remains faithful in the story. And he restores Sarah, his wife. To him, and they leave Egypt with a boatload of cash, right? They go out of there and they despoil Egypt. Okay? And they take off, they come back to the land. We are still in that context. As soon as he got back to the land, the war broke out. So now that that is all settled down, he receives the blessing from Melchizedek or Shem, and suddenly. We have a covenant story that takes place. And I ask you, why the necessary renewal of the covenant? Because of the, of the failures of Abraham or the struggle of Abraham to live up to the call of chapter 12. And we're going to see this over and over again. There's a renewal of the covenant that takes place multiple times over the next few chapters, which is what we're going to talk about today. And in between each one, Abram, who becomes Abraham shortly begins to struggle. And you remember we talked in about, about Hebrews chapter 8, is it chapter 8, about the vision of faith and how faith is that hope in things unseen and then gives us that vision, though imperfect. Well, Abram struggles with that imperfect vision. And this is why his story is so important for us today. It's our story as we struggle back and forth with our sin as we want to be in union with God and we fall away. Okay? So let's read chapter 15 from verse 1. I'm going to read to verse 8. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Talk to me, friends. What jumps out at you? What's Abram's state? What's the problem here? If God has to say, fear not... He's been fearing, right? He is not, and if he's fearing, that means he's not trusting fully. And that story is going to bring that out. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what wilt thou give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Remember we talked about that, that Abram probably, when he came from Ur through Haran, probably came through Damascus. And here he ends up with a, a, a slave from Damascus. Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and, slave, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. 
This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able. If you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how will I know that I shall possess it? Show me proof. Enough with this faith thing. I'm trusting you, but I want to know. And he said, bring me a heifer three years old, a she-goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in two and laid them half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And lo, a dread and a great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for a surety. Okay, so you go, Lord, I want to know. And now God speaks and says, Know for certain that your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there and they will be oppressed for 400 years. Oh, thank you, Lord. Right? I would have hoped for some better news for Abram. But I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then the sun, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I give this land from from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, of the, of the Kenizzites, of the Kadamonites, of the Hittites, of the Perizzites, of the Rephaim, of the Amorites and the Canaanites. Okay, enough. He's going to give them the whole thing. He's going to give them the whole thing. I want to come back now. I want to come back for a moment to look at this text a little bit closer. First of all, Abram's fear and and, and God's promise, it says Abram believed, but then he says, I want to know. You remember the father of the demoniac in Mark chapter 9. It says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. This is why his story is so critical. How many of us have said that? I believe, Lord. I want to believe more. I want to believe more. But show me somehow a sign. Show me what you're going to do. Notice in verse, um, in verse 5, And he brought him out and said, Look toward the heaven, the number of stars, if you are able to number them, so your descendants will be. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. What do you guys think? He takes him out of his tent. And this happens to Abram a number of times. God always speaks to him at nighttime. No, it's always in the middle of the day. God says, come on out of your tent, Abram. Take a look at the sky. You want proof? You want proof that I'm going to be faithful to you? 
Take a look at the sky. Number the stars, if you can. And what did Abram see? A blue sky. No stars. No stars. He says, I want to know, Lord. I want to know. Show me proof. Show me proof. How will I know this? And immediately as the sun sets, Abram enters into a deep sleep. And I want to share with you a, a quotation from Archbishop Raya about the transfiguration. Remember the apostles fell into that deep sleep with the Lord? I've, heard, I've read so many commentaries on the transfiguration that com- modern, obviously, commentaries on the transfiguration miss the point completely. They say, well, the apostles were tired from going up Mount Tabor. Some of you have been up Mount Tabor with me. It's a, it's a long walk up there, but let me tell you, if God is transfigured in front of you, the last thing you're going to do is get tired because of the journey, right? What is this deep sleep? You remember, Adam also entered into a deep sleep in the presence of the Lord. And immediately when he awoke, what did he say? At last this is bone of my bone, flesh of my bone. St. Ephraim says he saw more clearly when he rested in the arms of the Lord than he would have seen had he been awake according to our human way of being awake. No, this is a sleep, a resting in the Lord. And those that rest in the Lord do so in the seventh day, in the day of rest, in the day of covenant, when God comes and joins himself to us. Archbishop Rhea says this about the, about the transfiguration, and as I'm reading it, I want you to see Abram. I want you to see Abram there, who's struggling to see, struggling to see what God is going to do with him. He says, likewise on Mount of Transfiguration, Christ shone with such radiance that the disciples could not bear to gaze directly at him. The intensity of the radiance of his divine presence swept away, swept them away, and the brilliance of his beauty absorbed all their attention. They could not endure to think of any other thing or to see any other reality. They were in ecstasy. The notion of sleep as mentioned here is admirably suited to to express the disciples, or in our case, Abram's experience of ecstasy in the presence of the Lord. The immensity of his glory attracted all their powers, all their faculties. It synchronized and harmonized them into unity and centered them upon their one unique object, God's glory. The disciples, or Abraham, completely oblivious to everything else. There is no better expression than the word sleep to describe such an intense concentration. Abram rests in God and begins to learn to trust. To sleep in the Lord is to enter into a deep covenantal bond with Him. What is the the meaning of these animals cut in half and the torch going through? There's a a little insight that the prophet Jeremiah gives us. So keep your hand in Genesis. Go to the prophet Jeremiah. It's lucky for you that Jeremiah is big. So you're going to be able to find him no problem. Jeremiah chapter 34. Chapter 34, verse 18. Now, Institute of Catholic Culture people, when is Jeremiah writing his prophecy? What's he writing about? What? Yeah, right just before the exile, right? Well, and during, even the Lamentations, right? Good, Kathy. So this is exactly what he's talking about in the breaking of the covenant during the Babylonian exile, but it can help us here. Look at verse 18. Chapter 34, verse 18. 
And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant which they made before me, I will make like the calf which they cut in two and passed between its parts. The princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies. I will give them into the hand of their enemies. Come back with me now to Genesis chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What is a symbol of this burning fire, this torch? We see the same thing in Exodus, don't we? Who leads them on their way? The Lord does. Revealed in the cloud of glory, the smoke which descended on Mount Sinai, and the, and the flaming pillar of fire, right? This is a symbol of God who walks himself through the midst of this covenant, through the midst of these animals, saying like Jeremiah... May I become like these animals, cut in half, killed, slaughtered, if I break this covenant with you. If I break this covenant with you. God certainly is showing his faithfulness, and Abram is struggling to find his. When Abram turned and said, let me know, Lord, that you're going to be faithful to me, that you're going to do what you said you're going to do, Abram simply needed to look at the context of his life. As I've said, and I'll say it again, that a text without a context is no text at all. What has God just done for Abram? He was in Egypt. Pharaoh had his wife. He had no hope. Remember that repetition three times of Pharaoh's name. And Abram stays silent. Remember that. Only God could save him and only God did save him. If Abram wants real tangible proof that God is faithful and is going to fulfill his covenant with him, his promises of Genesis 12, he needs simply to look into the eyes of his wife who had now been restored to him. Abram, do you want to know? I already showed you that I will not abandon you, but will give you this land. Look and see where you're standing. You're rich because of what I did to Pharaoh. Don't ask me to prove myself, Abram. Show me your faith. In chapter 16, as Abram comes out of this this um, experience, this experience, not all is well. It's not perfect. He's still being called into a deeper relationship. And immediately in chapter 16, who do we meet? Mm. Yeah, we meet Sarah, but we meet someone else for the first time. Hagar, who is? Not just any kind of slave, an Egyptian slave. Now, where in the world would Abram have gotten an Egyptian slave or Sarah, an Egyptian concubine or Egyptian maid when they were in Egypt? My friends, it's going to be much easier for God to get Abram out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of Abram. Okay, and we're going to see this over and over again. 
Okay. Immediately in chapter 16, and we don't have time to read through the whole thing, immediately, as you would expect, as you would expect, when Hagar becomes pregnant, she despises Sarah. And immediately there is conflict in the household of God that should have been a place of peace. Because Abram has brought a little bit of Egypt into his house, hasn't he? He's brought, us, he's brought conflict into his home. Struggle and strife. In chapter 17, in chapter 17, we will see once again a covenant restoration or a renewal of the covenant. Why would we need a renewal of the covenant in chapter 15? Because of Hagar in chapter 16. And what is the sign of this covenant union? Let's take a look at it. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between you and me, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, which you remember from last time means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham is literally the addition of a multitude or a great people's. Okay, you will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God, uh, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of, the, of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generation, their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh and your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Once again, thank you, Lord. Last time we had a covenant, he said they're going into exile for what, 400 years or four generations, whatever he said. Right? And now we get a renewal of the covenant. Circumcision? I mean, what about the mercy of the Lord? You and all of your household and all their descendants. You know, circumcision, as far as the historians and archaeologists can find, was first practiced where? In Egypt. We have drawings on walls 600 years before Abraham of men being circumcised. Huh? Abraham has just come out of Egypt. He's just taken Hagar as his concubine. And remember, and I'll say it again, a text without a context is no text at all. The last person in our story to practice polygamy was Pharaoh, who took Sarai as another wife. Abram goes and acts like the Egyptians, and God places on him like a tattoo 
a reminder of his sin and a sign of his former life and a sign of the covenant which God will be faithful regardless of whether Abram's faithful or not. Huh? A text without a context is no text at all. As one of my professors in college said, um, if Abraham wants to act like an Egyptian, then he can walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> I, that only goes over well on, the, on an older crowd, really. <laughs> the 18 years old, they don't get it. All right. The name changes. I said this, this addition of the Am um at the end of Abram's name um, is, is expanding his uh, really his kingship and his dominion. He will not only be exalted father, he will be father of, uh, of many peoples or many, of many nations or of a great nation. Also in chapter 17, uh, verse 15, verse 15, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. You see the similar pattern. Sarai to Sarah is, a, is as far as translators, and trust me, I'm not a translator, um, but is, is a, a difficult thing to translate exactly what the, what the difference is. But certainly, the explanation gives it to us. Abram to Abraham a little easier with that addition of many nations. And here now Sarah will be the mother, not of a small family, but of, of, of many nations. In chapter uh, 17, verse 16, I will bless her, I will bless Sarah, and moreover I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in thy sight. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. Now stop for a second and look at chapter 18, verse 12. Sarah has the exact same reaction. Okay? Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Okay? Now come back to me to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 19. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means he laughs. So that every single time this couple calls out for their son, they will remember they're doubting God and they're laughing at him. Okay? Yeah, God does have a sense of humor. I'll just, I have to turn there. Um, I think we're doing somewhat okay for time. Yes, I think we're going okay for time. Right? Yeah. We're fine. Don't worry about it. You guys aren't going anywhere anyways, right? It's fine. Um, I just want you to turn. Keep your hand in Genesis and turn to Romans chapter 2. Just to remind us of the purpose of circumcision. Chapter 2. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 25. It's in the New Testament, Catholics. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, and when we're talking about law, don't get caught up about, about this command, that command, that command. The fundamental heart of the law, it is the will of God for his people, for their good. It's the, it's the car manual in our car, okay? This is how you act if you want to be happy and flourish. It's not God's dictatorship imposing something foreign to them. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but yet keep the law will condemn you who have, written, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For he is not a real Jew who is not one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external or physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. Abram, this reminder in your flesh is supposed to do something. It's supposed to remind you of your former ways. It's supposed to remind you of your former life. Huh? I have all sorts of things in my life that are a constant reminder of the stupidity of my youth. Constantly before me. Circumcision is supposed to do exactly that. Melanie, is this, um, if I flip this, is this going to give me the Fertile Crescent? It is. I just, because I forgot last time, I'm just going to stop for a moment and to show you this, remember Ur of the Chaldees is over in this area, right? Jerusalem is right here at the top of the Dead Sea. There's the Jordan River if you can see it. Okay. Abram journeyed not straight across the desert. Why? And nobody wants to go across the desert. But if you look at his path up to Haran and then down through Damascus and then eventually to the Negev and eventually to Egypt, he followed the Fertile Crescent. Okay, where there was food and safety and so forth. Okay, I just, it was on my mind while I was talking. See, there it is right there. Okay, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yes, Deacon Sabatino. So wonderful. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, let me just get back to my notes to make sure that um, I know where I am. Okay, in chapter 18 and 19, we have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah we're going to be covering next month. Right after we do Peter Kreef's fall, uh, The Angels and Demons, we're going to be talking about Sodom and Gomorrah because the angels appear now in chapter 18 to Abram, right? And he's going to go meet and find people that are influenced certainly by the demons in Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? So we're going to do that next month. And so we're going to skip chapters 18 and 19. Um, and I would encourage you to come next month when my brother is in town um, for, his, for his presentation on that. In chapter 20, in chapter 20, uh, we meet Abimelech. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev. The Negev is, the, is, is literally the, the south of the southern region, right down in this area, okay? Some of you have been down there with me just kind of almost desert wasteland. Um, 
he journeyed down into the Negev and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, that said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. <laughs> and, and Abimelech, the king, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in the dream by night and said, Behold, you are a dead man. <laughs> okay? So, I mean, come on, Abraham. Not again, not again. Look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What were you thinking of that you did this thing. And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is my sister, the daughter, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Okay? So look, Ab uh, same story, right? Over and over again in the life of Abraham is our own life, isn't it? Over and over again, that same as... as um, as Father Joseph loves to say, and I'll share it with you because I think it's a great, great line. He says, what do you want to do when you come to confession? Make up new sins? <laughs> it's the same sin over and over again, isn't it? And we keep going to the Lord. And, and who is faithful? Who is the one that's forgiving? Yeah, the Lord is forgiving always. And he remains faithful throughout this entire story. Um, and in, in verse... 14, verse 14, chapter 20, verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases. So Sarah, to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is your vindication in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone who... Uh, uh, everyone... Sorry, that you are righted. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they could bear children. So what happens to Abimelech's household? They be, they're, they're struck with a plague. The women become barren. Thank you. I was, the word wasn't coming. The, the, yeah, the women all become barren. And Abimelech gives all this money to Abraham. What's it sound like? What's it sound like? It's the same story of Pharaoh earlier, right? The exact same thing happened. It's also the exact same story of the Exodus. And remember, by tradition, who is writing this text for us? Moses. This is, no, this is more than history, friends. It's, it is history, yes, but it's more than history. It's a catechetical document showing God's faithfulness. Remember, when there are two witnesses... It establishes the fact. We saw that in Deuteronomy. And now we have two times in which God has been faithful in the exact same situation where the people of God are taken into a foreign household. They're oppressed by a foreign king. And that foreign king releases them and gives them money to get out. Now, why would they do this? Why would Pharaoh and Abimelech do this? Um, uh, I shared with you some quotes from Umberto Casudo last time. Uh, he's got some fantastic insights, and he says this. Even without adultery, because it's very clear that Abimelech and, and most likely also Pharaoh never touched Sarah. 
Okay? Even without adultery, the acceptance of Pharaoh's bounty, and in this case of Bimelech's, casts a shadow of doubt on the worthiness of Abram's conduct. And in particular, there arises the question, why does the Torah tell us all this in detail? To find the answer to this question, one must consider one of the provisios of the laws of, the, of Middle Assyria, which deals with a similar matter. Since the legal tradition in its general outline was common to all the countries of the Fertile Crescent, it may be assumed that the provisions of this clause were in force in all the countries of this region. Now this is what is stated in Tablet A of the Middle Assyrian Laws. If in the case of the wife of a man, one, another man, who is not her father, not her brother, nor her sons, but another man, should cause her to go on any journey without knowing that she is the wife of a man. He must take an oath, swear that he didn't have relations with her, okay, and give two tablets of lead to the husband of the woman. In other words, the fine. He must pay the, pay the fine for having done it. And this is exactly what takes place in both of these texts. And it's there as proof to the Israelites that God is going to be faithful to them, even though they find themselves in slavery to Pharaoh. They can see that God has proven twice of his faithfulness. And ultimately, they see they have walked out with all of these things, we see in Exodus, they walk out with the gold and silver of Egypt with one promise. God is going to give us back that land, which they don't quite see yet. They don't quite see yet, but in faith, they begin to see what God has planned for them. Okay. Chapter 21. In chapter 21, Isaac is born. Isaac is born. And Hagar is sent away a second time. Okay? Let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to skip a few verses. We're going to read some of this text, though. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when, it was the eight, when he was eight, the eighth day old. Come down to verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. Huh? Ishmael and Isaac were playing together. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the lad and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall be your descendants be named. And we don't have time to get into it, but throughout all of the story of Abraham and even before him, there's this constant refrain that, that the husband listened to the words of his wife. And time and time again, this is nothing against women. Please don't, don't shoot the messenger. All right? Time and time again, the man falls because he's not listening to the word of God, but listening to men. And the same thing happens here. 
Verse 14, so Abraham arose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. The wilderness of Beersheba is in the Negev. Huh? There's not a whole lot out there. And he gives her a couple of slices of bread and a skin of water. And sends her out to what? To what? Verse 15, When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down over against him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, of a bowshot. For she said, Let me n- not look upon the death of my child. Huh? Abram sends them out to certain death. To certain death. In chapter 22, in verse 1, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. Take your son, your only son. Why his only son? Is it his only son? But as far as Abram knows, he only has one son left. Your only son. The one whom you love. The one whom you love. Do you see the difference? We're going to have a story now in chapter 22 of the sacrifice of Isaac. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, and kill him. Kill him. Like you killed Ishmael. There's something more here going on. This is all in the context. This is all in the context of... Abram's recent sojourn with whom? With Abimelech. It's all in the context of his sojourn with Abimelech. And just as it was so difficult to get, to get Egypt out of the heart of Abraham, so it's going to be even more difficult to get the land of the Philistines. Abimelech was the king of the Philistines. It's also, by the way, a throne name. Melchizedek, Melech, Abimelech, Abimelech, it's a throne name, okay? It was a throne name of the kings of the Philistines. The Philistines were known for their paganism. They were pantheists. And they were also, in their worship of their false gods, child sacrificers. They sacrificed their children. Abram, you want to walk? Like the Philistines? You want to walk like the Philistines? Then you're going to have to walk like the Philistines. Come on. Let's go sacrifice your son, Abram. And see what it feels like. See what it feels like. Like your circumcision. To act like your enemies. Those who set themselves against God. In verse 1. In verse 1. And don't worry, this is the, the culminating text, and Abram dies shortly after this. So, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, what is the land of Moriah? Where's Moriah? Yeah, it's the land of, you can write it down. Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Go to the land of Moriah. Moriah is the hills surrounding and including Jerusalem. It's the land of Judah. 
It's the land of Judah. Go up there and sacrifice your son. When's the last time we were up in Jerusalem, guys? With Melchizedek, exactly. You go up there to that place where Melchizedek offered bread and wine, the priest of God Most High, the righteous king, the one in whom, whose shoes you're to walk. You go up there and you take your son like a Philistine king and do to him, do to him as you just treated your wife, giving her to a foreign man. You want to live with the Philistines? You're going to act like the Philistines. Go up to Jerusalem and offer a burnt offering. Now look at Leviticus. Keep your hand there in Genesis and look at Leviticus chapter 1. Verse 1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of cattle and herd or from the flock, from the, from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it at the door of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hands upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement. To make atonement for his sins. The sacrifice of Isaac is to be offered for the atonement of the sin of Abraham. Now what is the sin of Abraham? That he went down, he lived among the Philistines again, he gave his wife once again because he feared, we saw that before, he feared again for his own life rather than trusting in God. And then when he came back, once God had shown his faithfulness, he sent Ishmael to his certain death. The murder of Ishmael. You know this text well. I just want to read it with you uh, up to verse 14 and then to make a few last uh, comments and then we'll be done for the evening. Verse 3, so Abram rose early in the morning, he saddled his ass. I'm sorry, chapter 22, you're there? Chapter 22, verse 3, I apologize. Genesis 22, 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, he saddled his ass, he took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come to you again. Notice that his sacrifice of Isaac is understood by him as the way of worshiping the Lord. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in the hand, his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father... And he said, Here am I, son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went of them together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Then Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a ram uh, was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is written to this day, On the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. On the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. We oftentimes read this text as foreshadowing Christ, and we rightly should do that. I started out our time together last week uh, talking to you about the literal versus spiritual interpretation of the text. We always build our spiritual interpretation upon the literal interpretation. And we've spent our time over the last two weeks together building that literal translation, or literal interpretation, I should say. That historical meaning which Moses was trying to get across. But certainly we also know that there are two authors to Scripture. Not only the human author, but also the divine author. And certainly this text is written not only for the instruction of Israel during the Exodus, but also for our own instruction. Isaac is a foreshadowing of Christ. He is a type of Christ. Christ offers himself in the, for the atonement of sin. Notice in verse 4, in verse 4, chapter 22, verse 4, Abram journeyed three days, just as Jesus journeyed through death for three days. In verse 5, the offering is not simply in obedience to the command. Abraham sees himself as offering the worship of the Lord. In verse 6, in verse 6 of chapter 22, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Isaac carried the wood upon which he would be sacrificed. There's something more there, though, that if Isaac is able to carry the wood for the sacrifice, what does it tell you about Isaac? Huh? Don't we see little pictures, beautiful Renaissance pictures of, you know, chubby little Isaac there, innocent little nice Isaac? No. Isaac's a man. He's a young man. He's strong. He's strong enough to carry the wood. And why is it that he carries the wood and not Abram or Abraham? Abraham is old. He's weak. Isaac takes the wood upon his shoulders and carries it up to the sacrifice, Abraham would have been somewhere between 115 and 130 years old at this point. Abram binds Isaac down, the one who was stronger than him. Isaac would have needed to be a willing sacrifice. In verse 5, is probably the most hair-raising of the text in verse 5. 
literally in the Hebrew, it says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the ass. We will go yonder. We will worship. And we will come again to you. Hold your hand in your Bible there and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm not going to have you turn to any more text. Don't worry. Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11. Verse. You with me? (laughs) Hebrews 11 verse 17. If you're not there, just listen. It's worth listening to. Verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was ready to offer up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your descendants be named. He considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. Hence he did receive him back. And this was a symbol. He goes on to say it was a symbol of Christ. Abram had a vision of faith. Abram believed in the resurrection. And that's why he was willing to go and offer up his son. He knew God would be faithful to him. Notice in, in the, the, the conclusion of this text in verse um, 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Notice that before, Abram said, God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself the lamb in verse 8. And here a ram is found caught in the thicket. From this point forward, the Jews would look toward the fulfillment of Abram's prophecy that God would eventually provide himself the lamb. And yes, the lamb, which John sees on the edge of the Jordan River and says, Behold, the lamb of God on this mountain to be sacrificed, on the mountain of Jerusalem, where the Jews believed Adam and Eve had been created, Noah's ark had come to rest, where Isaac was to be sacrificed, where Solomon built his temple, there Jesus, verse 3, chapter 22, verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his ass and rode it up to the mountain. On that mountain, Jesus would come riding on an ass, being the Lamb of God, willingly to carry the wood of the cross and to be offered for the atonement for our sins. In chapter 23, verse 1, we find out that Sarah dies. Sarah dies. Chapter 23 and chapter 24, the story of Abram sending his servant out to find a, a wife for Isaac. Okay, you know that story well. And in chapter 25, once Rebekah has been brought back, in chapter 25, we learn of the death of Abraham. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Remember, this isn't polygamy, right? Sarah has already died. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him. And now you have the list of her sons. And in verse 5, 
Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son eastward to the east country, away from the presence of the Lord, so that the family of God begun in Adam, carried on through Seth, given to Enoch and to Noah and to Shem or Melchizedek and given in blessing to Abraham and to his only son Isaac would come to fruition. That God would restore on this earth his family. And into that family he would be born to give his life for the sins of the world. Thank you very much for your attention. about the deep sleep being in the arms of God and, and the ecstasy of, of all that. So why was Abraham in, in a great dread? A great, a great dread fell over him? Yes, yeah. No, there's certainly two types of fear, right? Is, is Abram fearing... Uh, is Abraham fear? I can use Abraham now. I was trying to be so good last week about not saying Abraham. Um, was Abraham fearing those around him? Or was he fearing God? In fact, we get in Genesis... Um, maybe you can turn the volume down just a little bit over there. I think it's a little bit excessive. Um, just a touch. Take a look at chapter 22. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's chapter 25 when it says he died. Yes, I know the text you're talking about. Anyway, somewhere in there it indicates that he, that he feared God and this was considered towards his righteousness and was considered a good thing. So there's two types of fear, right? There's the fear of the Lord, which is a good thing. There's the fear of those that, that there's the fear that God's not going to protect you. And that's the problem that we get right after that chapter in chapter, um, I'll find it, in chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Right? And that's a, that's, that's a different, he's fearing this whole war that just happened in chapter 14. Like, am I really going to be able to take possession of this land? There's all these kings running around killing each other. Can I really do this? Right? He says, I am your shield. This is the problem. Pope John Paul II made this point about uh, the fall of Adam. He said, when Adam fell, he allowed the trust in his heart to die the trust in God his faith in God to die in his heart something like that okay and so it's a similar situation do we and and we face the same thing I, I, I keep saying it but this is this is the great story for us right will God provide will he provide um, will he protect us if we really go out in faith and do what he's asking us to do will it be okay and we have the examples of the saints to a man all said, I'm going. I'm leaving house and home. I'm doing whatever it takes and I'm going. And here we have the story of a man struggling. And in the end, he becomes our father in the faith. We know his name. There's many people we don't know on this earth. We know his name because his name is written in the book of life. Okay? So two different types of fear. We have a question coming in from Kathleen in Tecumseh, Michigan. Okay. Will you speak a little about the blessing of Hagar, yet the curse of Ishmael bestowed by God in Genesis 16, 7 through 13? The blessing of Hagar and the curse of Ishmael. Maybe verse 12. Okay, I think, she was, I, I, think I know what she's talking about in verse 12. 
Um, he shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand against every man and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against his kinsmen. I don't see a curse necessarily. And in fact, um, later on in, um, in chapter, I want to answer her question, in, in chapter 21, notice that um, chapter 21, verse 18 Verse 18, I will make him a great nation. Ishmael is blessed. And in fact, in chapter 25, he ends up burying Abraham alongside Isaac. So, these, so people that want to say, well, Ishmael is the father of the Arabs, and the Arabs are the Muslims, and, 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 and Israel is the Jews, and so there's this forever has been a division, and they hate each other. That's not true. They buried their father together. Ishmael came back. Hagar came back and lived in the house of Abraham, and there was peace. Um, and he receives a blessing. He is, he is his son, and he receives a blessing. The same the sons of Keturah receive blessings, and their names are there in the book of life. We know who they are. So I would just say that, that uh, and uh, let me say one, other, one last thing. I know I'm breaking your rule. That, um, that notice also that Hagar is the one that holds Sarah in contempt. Okay, in is it chapter 15? No, chapter 16. In chapter 16, it is it, in, in verse 4, it's Hagar that holds Sarah in contempt. Okay, St. Ephraim says later on, when Ishmael or when Isaac is born in chapter 21, when he, St. Ephraim is beautiful, he stands in the text and he just he lets the text speak to me, sees the picture take place. And we know like father, like son, right? Like parents, their kids are going to be like them, okay? And so he says that when uh, Sarah saw the two boys playing together, what she saw was Ishmael doing what his mother had done, snickering, he says, snickering at Isaac, okay? He was the older brother, right? He was older than him, more powerful, stronger, Okay, so there's a whole battle taking place or, or struggle taking place behind this scene, at least that St. Ephraim sees. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you for coming. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.